And I thought, what is this sadness? And then I thought, well, it's probably that I'm not sufficiently spiritual to really appreciate these hymns. That as I've gotten older, the righteousness and innocence of youth has declined. And as I look back on these hymns of my youth, I'm realizing how far short I've fallen of what I hoped to be when I was an adult. And I'm realizing the, 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 the sort of crud of sin. You know how you have certain parts of your home that, 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 that have crud gathers? You know what I'm saying? They're like corners and stuff where, you know, crud. I'm real fixated with Taylor right now that on our new deck, there's a place where the horizontal boards meet a vertical board. So as he sweeps, I don't want a bunch of like residue there because then it'll rot, you know. So like as we get older... You know how? Okay. So anyhow, I was convinced that that was what was going on with me. But you know what? That wasn't what was going on with me. You know what was really going on with me? What was really going on was that I was remembering my childhood. And that I was sad because I miss my childhood. It had nothing to do with godliness or righteousness. But the hymns were the vehicle that allowed me to be maudlin and to remember the past and to be sad about the past having gone. Do you understand that? Now, what does that have to do with the sermon? There are a whole lot of ways that we carry culture. Culture has an infinite number of containers that it can be carried in. And as, as we've observed often, culture is the hardest thing to see. Because culture, by definition, is the thing that you just live in. You know, like a fish lives in water. Now, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful texts to me. Because it tells me who Jesus really is, really is. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Father, thank you that you did not come, that you did not send your son to save the righteous, but the dirty and the no accounts, the sinners. Now may the words from my mouth and the thoughts on all of our hearts be acceptable to you. You who search 
us and try us and know us. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Matthew is called Levi in two of the other Gospels, but it's interesting that the connection between Matthew and Levi isn't made explicitly by the other Gospel writers. There seems to be a modesty panel. You know what a modesty panel, when you have women up on a platform, you put up a little, you know, fence or something, wall. Modest. There seems to be a modesty panel that are put up by the other disciples, the Gospel writers, so that they don't make it explicit that that Matthew and Levi was a tax collector. It's only Matthew's own voice that we get that from. And here he is one of the 12 disciples. We see the list of the 12 disciples in Matthew as he himself records it. In chapter 10, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. So it's only from Matthew that we find out that he was a tax collector. It's interesting also that James and John were given a nickname by Jesus. Now, what do you know about John? Well, John was the lover, right? John was the quiet one, the lover. John's the one that wrote the Gospel of John and also uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's one of the three. He's the one that, he, that's, that it's said that Jesus particularly loved. But Jesus gave him what nickname? Yeah, him and his brother, they had the name Sons of Thunder. Now, how does a lover get the name Son of Thunder? Well, more about that later. So anyhow, here we have Matthew identifying himself as a tax collector in Matthew 10 when the list of the disciples. And here we have the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. Jesus went on from there, verse 9, saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, we think tax collector and we think somebody that has a clean job inside an office building working with the phone and with papers, an IRS agent, but that's not what it is. It would be more like a customs officer, somebody that worked down at the docks and supervised everything that came in and out of a particular area. Herod Antipas was the Roman governor of the territory and Matthew worked collecting taxes for him and from all the goods that went through that area. Uh, whether they came across the Jordan River or across the Sea of Galilee. And it was a despised occupation. Uh, we find it listed along with thieves and sinners in Jewish literature of the time. And Jews declared tax collectors to be ritually unclean. Now, we don't have a big problem with that because we can be as clean as we want. I was going through the checkout counter of the uh, grocery store the other day and looked down in the little box where they kept their... Or no, I guess trying to remember where it was. I don't remember where it was. Some store. And I looked down in the box that they kept their pens for signing uh, receipts with, and there was this little bottle of uh, uh, D-something. Yeah, hand-something or sanitizer or something like that, you know. And I thought, whoa. I noticed the other day coming out of the grocery store that there was a woman that before she put her hands on her grocery cart went over to the wall I thought, whoa, you know, we don't have anybody that's ritually unclean today. We don't even know what it is. Uh, but back then, 
the religious leaders and the good Jews, now I emphasize good Jews, uh, had a, an unbelievable number of uh, rules that they put up to protect their spiritual life. Now, it is true in the Old Testament that an awful lot of what passed as godliness, according to Scripture, was how you ate, what you ate, what it was mixed with while you were fixing it, what kind of vessels it was in. But now, if you look at that apparatus to separate the Jews from those who were not God's people, if you look at all that apparatus and you think about it, you think, how could a tax collector ever be righteous? He couldn't. He was hopeless. You know, a tax collector had to touch things and be around people who were completely pagan. And so even to live the life of a tax collector assured that you were cut out of good religious people. A tax collector would never, ever, ever in a million years have shown up in any of the churches that have nice church buildings in town here. And he might have been willing to come here if, if we somehow hid the fact that we were a church and said we met in a public school. Uh, now, if there was a home group, he might have been willing to come in your home because if you opened your home to him, that meant that you didn't mind having your home ritually impure. You understand, everywhere this person went, there was a stink. Now, it wouldn't have been a literal stink. It would have been the stink of complete separation from the good Jews. All right. So that's who Matthew was. He was despised. He was ritually unclean. Now, why were they unclean? Well, the job required them to live in ritual contamination, but also it was unpatriotic. You know, think of somebody that works for the United States right now or the military over in Iraq. You know, think of some of the policemen over there and you get sort of a good idea. You know, imagine how they're hated. They're bombed. They're killed constantly. They're like, you know, cattle going to the slaughter. So they were unpatriotic. They were ritually contaminated. And finally, they were extorters. They were constantly using their authority and their position as the, uh, the agents of the occupying army, the Roman army. They're constantly using it to extort, to cheat to lie and to, to feather their own bed, to make themselves rich and, and to take the part of their friends. Now, Jesus goes up to this man and he says, follow me. Now, fortunately, now I'm being sarcastic here, so I want to give you a warning. Fortunately, the Christians had made it clear that you could be a good Christian and a good tax collector. And so Matthew didn't really have to, to make that much of a change. He could continue to be a tax collector and he could continue to be following Jesus. In fact, he could hire people to run his, his, his business while he was gone because there's really nothing incompatible, really, if you think about it, with tax collecting and following Jesus. It, it probably took him just a few minutes to set his son in his seat and say, okay, now I've taught you everything. I'm dependent on this income as I go after Jesus. Now, why am I being sarcastic? Well, I'm being sarcastic because that's what we tend to do with people who are thinking about following Jesus. We try to minimize the things they'll have to leave behind and explain to them how really only prudes would, would make them give up being tax collectors. They can come after Jesus and keep their tax collecting. It's okay. 
you know. Well, no, no, no. Uh, every one of the disciples who left their jobs left them. They, they didn't hold on to them with one hand and follow Jesus. They didn't hold on to them through their sons. It's very, very clear that Matthew uh, and all of the people who come to Jesus to this very day repent. They turn and follow Jesus. You know, following Jesus isn't just a continuity with the sort of progression towards God that their life was already on. You know, the whole context is Matthew is a sinner. He is a real sinner. You know, he really does extort. He really is ritually unclean. And he really is a scoundrel for taking the side of the occupying army. And when Jesus says, follow me, it is repentance. And we must never try to minimize the cost. Jesus says, count the cost. And... uh, Jesus doesn't brook any competitors. Jesus is not willing to have us have a little, uh, you know, uh, strip mall store on the side that's feeding us income while we go along with him, the son of man who has no place to lay his head. In other words, this was a change for Matthew. It was a radical change. Now, what do we see? Well, we see that Matthew didn't hesitate. He, He did it. He got up and he followed him. In fact, in Luke 5.27, a parallel account, although Luke names him Levi, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. He left everything behind. So Matthew was called by Jesus and the call was entirely effective in the heart of this tax collector. Again, the call was entirely effective. Jesus called him and the call was entirely effective. We read there was no delay in Matthew's obedience and this theme of immediate obedience is worth noting all over scripture. I'll just read one place. Psalm 119.60, David says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. When God speaks to us, we're to respond. We don't know, but there may well have been um, any number of people uh, who really were not willing to follow Jesus. And uh, we have an account of one man saying, let me return and bury my father and how Jesus treated him. We have the account of the rich young ruler that Jesus said, Yet one thing remains, go and sell everything that you have. So we have some indications of some men hesitating. Um, but we know that Matthew didn't do this. He, came, he got up and he followed. He instantly obeyed. And so he went from being a rich man to being a man who left it all and followed a man who had nowhere to lay his head. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, we have an account of another man who had a position that was prestigious, powerful under the Roman Empire, and that's Felix in Matthew 24, verse 24. It says, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Felix and Drusilla's uh, relationship was not moral. And he was the Roman leader, and so he sent for Paul. And I'm thinking that if I had been in prison and I had been sent for by, you know, a powerful Roman leader who his relationship with his wife was immoral, and I knew what happened to John the Baptist, I don't think I would have done what Paul did. But it says here 
that as he, Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, there's that Paul again. (laughs) He doesn't get it, does he? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became what? Any of you know what it says? Huh? Frightened. Great Roman leader. He gets frightened. And it says, he said, go away for the present and when I find time, I will summon you. Go away for the present and when I find time. When do we find time to repent? Absolutely never. Absolutely never. Repentance is a gift from God. And that's why today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but repent. Because when God speaks to our hearts and calls us to himself, it's his grace. And we respond like Matthew. He got up. It's like that. That's what it is. It's obedience. It's everything your father never taught you to do. (laughs) I mean, do you know why I'm laughing? I'm laughing because that's, you know, we all count. Joseph? Or no, it would not be Joseph anymore. It would be Taylor. (laughs) You know, Taylor, you go outside and you what? Sweep, Sweep the deck, okay? Go outside and sweep the deck. Taylor, have you gone outside and swept the deck yet? No, I haven't, Daddy. I told you to go outside and sweep the deck. Taylor, have you gone outside and swept the deck yet? No, Daddy. I want to count. One. Two. That's why it's so important that mothers and fathers train their children to be obedient, not to delay. Because then they're prepared today when they hear the voice of God. Respond. God calls and we respond. So anyhow, Felix put it off. Matthew did it right away. He got up and he left. All right. Now, what happens? Verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, back then formal meals, they ate laying down. Don't, I don't get it. Um, I do a lot lying down in my bed, reading, eating, but I don't think it's good. You know, they thought it was good. That was like a formal meal. They'd recline at the table. Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Many. Not some, many. Now, go figure. What's that about? You know, if you figure that Matthew was dirty, but that Peter and James and John and everybody else was clean, then conceivably Matthew was just one of twelve. Judas was dirty. Judas was probably very clean. Um, And so why all these tax collectors and sinners dining with Jesus and his disciples? You know, we get an idea that Matthew must have been the exception to the rule, that most of the other guys were good Jews. And, you know, but think about it. Of all the apostles that Jesus had around him, and he spent a night praying before he chose them, of all the apostles, isn't it interesting 
that not one of them was a Pharisee, not one of them was a PCA pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor, not one of them was a seminary professor, not one of them even had a bachelor's degree. As a matter of fact, I'll bet a lot of them didn't have even the the graduate equivalent exam or whatever it is. What is it called? GRE or GED? I get them mixed up. You know? What are you laughing about? Thank you. GRE. GT. Oh, graduate. Right. Yeah, it shows the world I live in, doesn't it? All right. <laughs> In fact, in the book of Acts, when they met in front of the rulers and were being examined and were in court, we read that the rulers took note that these were, and the the, the specific words of Scripture are, unschooled ordinary men. Unschooled. So what is this about? You know, you can look at Matthew and you can say, well, he was kind of a, He was an unusual one. The rest of them were good Jews. But, you know, to be a good Jew, you really had to be rich. You couldn't be a common laborer and be ritually clean. You understand that? Makes sense, right? That's why back in the days that my dad and Annie Lane were growing up in New York City, my dad told me about how the the rich Jews had Sabbath goyim who came in and did all the work that required them to live on the Sabbath but that they couldn't do because they had to keep themselves ritually clean. So if you had to turn on the stove, if you had to cook, if you had to clean, the rich Jews had Sabbath goyim. And they would come in and do all the work for the Jews, and that way the Jews could stay righteous and all the Gentiles would be sinful. All right? Well, we look here at Matthew, and we need to realize that Matthew was not atypical of who followed Jesus and listened to him and who Jesus worked with and loved and preached to and taught and ate with. Because the Bible says many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And we see this theme over and over and over again. Now, who else was there? Well, the Pharisees were there. In other words, the PCA and Southern Baptist pastors. But they weren't in the house. Why? Well, they weren't in the house because going in the house would have blown their religion. It would have required them to get dirty. I mean, literally. If they went in, then they'd have to go through all these ritual purification themes, and and, and it wouldn't have worked. And so if you've been to to a southern hemisphere country, you know what's going on here is that there's like a party. When we were at Rwanda for the closing ceremony, all the muckety mucks, including everyone who had white skin, were all in the building, and outside of the building was everybody that didn't matter, and a man walked around with a rod, like hitting anybody from outside the building that got too close to the windows. And this is the way it is all over the Southern Hemisphere. When you have a party, people hang around and look inside, sometimes because they're not invited, sometimes because they would not deign to go in, but they will look in to condemn And that's what's going on with the Pharisees. They're not in there, but they are looking in and they are condemning it because they have real communities there. They're not shades and drapes and, you know, garage door openers. And, you know, it's you live in the midst of people. You can see what's going on and they're condemning it. All right. 
If you look back at the text, all right, and you look down at verse uh, 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Okay. Now, you have to have the inflection proper. And the inflection is not, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? You know, that's not how they asked it. But it was more like, you know, you have to see the face. Why is Jesus eating with them? What are those people doing? What, what, what's that about? Oh, man, can you smell the smoke? Stink. You know? You know, did you see the butane burner on the front porch? You know? It's a meth lab. And Jesus, it says in verse 12, heard this and he said what? He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Remember how I talked about hymns at the beginning? Why do they bring up hymns? Well, because hymns are a good way of signing to all the people without talking about it. They're a good way of signaling people, don't worry, we're clean. You won't have to step out of your culture at this church. You can, you can live the life of your childhood and go to your grave without anything shaking you. We have hymns. Do you understand this? They carry culture. The way we dress carries culture. The buildings that we put up carry culture. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Jesus saying, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Every single one of these things that a church does is a way of signaling those who are healthy that this is a good place for you because we're healthy too. You understand this. Now, some of you are going to say, you know, why are you speaking against hymns? I'm not speaking against hymns. I told you I was listening to them last night. That's not the point. The point is, what are you willing to give up in order to love publicans and notorious sinners? And the answer is, for many of us, nothing. I won't change my clothes. I won't change my music. I won't change the building that I want for my church. I won't change my preacher. I won't change anything about my life to reach those who are unhealthy and sick and sinners. Because my life is about showing people how righteous I am. No, no, that's not really true. My life is about making sure that my children grow up to be as righteous as I wish I had been when I was their age. 
Now, you understand this? God, when, when God saved me, I don't know about you, but I wasn't righteous. You know? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with piercing yourself and having tattoos, right? But they do sign a certain thing, right? When David Abusara first came in here, I got it right, um, you know, he had all this like bleach blonde spiky stuff and like a post, you know, not here, but there, you know. And so now what? I'm happy to report to you that David now comes to church in a suit. <laughs> that, that we have given him hymn CDs and he knows how great thou art by heart. <laughs> in other words, we, we done civilized him. Well, it's not true. David's, David's a good foil, you know. I can talk about David, but what about you? What have you given up to reach the people on the campus and the people that you work with and the people in your neighborhood and the people not in your neighborhood who are notorious sinners? Have you ever met somebody who had a meth lab? They're all over the place. I guarantee you that the people that have the meth labs were the people that were with Jesus. You say, oh, come on, you're mixing things up. A meth lab person isn't a tax. I say notorious sinners. That's what the Bible says. So, like, do you know them? Do you know where they live? No, you live in the nice part of town like I do so that you don't have to be around scumbags like that. I mean, that's the whole point, you guys. Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have a pastor friend who's been talking to me um, about problems he has in his church. And it's a very clean church. Very clean. It's so clean that it has a waterfall in the sanctuary. Okay? And guess what? There's a battle going on in that church between the missions committee and the evangelism committee. <clears throat> now, I might be getting the details slightly wrong. But, and what's the battle over? The battle is over the fact that, that the missions committee feels like they're not getting enough of the attention and, and the priorities of the church for overseas mission because it's being squandered on evangelism local. And the local evangelism people are saying, what good is it to send money overseas when we're not doing any missions here in our own community? And then they argue and say, yeah, but everybody in the community's already heard, and so what's the point? You know, we need to find unreached people groups. And boy, the, the self-righteousness in that. Oh, unreached people groups. You, got, you may not know about this. I do because I'm a good evangelical. But, you know, unreached people's group, that's right at the top. That even trumps Billy Graham, <laughs> you know, unreached people's groups, you know. And you know what? Meth labs are unreached people groups. You know, Jesus, Jesus could have said, you know, there's nobody, there's nobody anywhere around here who hasn't heard about God and about the coming Messiah. You know, I'm going to go far, far away where people have never heard the good news, the gospel. Well, you say it's mixing things up. I, I admit it is. 
And yet the truth is people in this community have never heard the gospel. Why? Because they're surrounded by a bunch of self-righteous, Bible-believing, Christian schooling, families that live with remote control garage door openers so they never have to talk to anybody. You know what I'm saying? Jesus responded by showing that the first priority God has given us is our loving him with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength. And then guess what? We remember what we were when he called us. (laughs) And I wasn't pretty. I'm still not. But I was even lesser. And what about you when God called you? You weren't pretty, and you still aren't. But God is day by day changing us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not culture. It's not hymns. It's not ties. It's not suits. It's not a nice building. That's not what it is. I was rebuked last night when my daughter came home Hannah, and she was very excited. Hannah's not here, is she? Good. And she came home, and I had been up working on my sermon, but I'd gotten depressed because my wife and Annie Lane and my son were watching the playoffs on television. So I came down to watch. Well, the minute I started watching, a whole troop of people came into my house and robbed me of my nice little family unit and went off and played some games. So I stayed there because lethargy and slothfulness set in. And then Hannah came home and Hannah was bubbling. Why was Hannah bubbling? Because she'd spent the evening with a young man who was considering the claims of Christ. And so Hannah was talking to me about how the evening went and about how his parents were very resistant to him uh, going to church or having anything spiritual, and they'd make fun of him. And that this was the major issue that he was weighing the calls of Christ with is the fact that he would be, that he would be scorned by his father and stepmother if he came to Jesus. And Hannah is so excited about this, and she just loves the evening and loves everything. Now, you know... I know you wouldn't be like this, but, you know, Chicago had a chance, you know, and it was, in fact, they even, they got ahead of the heat for a few minutes, well, 30 seconds probably, and here's Hannah on the one hand talking to me about a soul, but on the other hand, there's the bulls and the heat. And you know, it's nip and tuck. And I'm your pastor. See, this is culture. You see, this is culture. And the question is, do we love God? Do we remember the hole, the pit that he dug us from? And are we willing to turn off the television and do the work of the kingdom? You say, well, Hannah's your daughter. That's not the work of the kingdom. I say, well, isn't, isn't that where it starts? 
I mean, really? I mean, come on, people. Look at your home. Everything in your home is set up for your own comfort and smug security. You know? And if you're asked about evangelism, you'll say that you put your kids in Christian school and they seem to be walking with the Lord. And that's it. And think, many of you, if you had had Christian families and people like that around you when you were lost in sin, you would never have been saved. Why? Because it was people who stepped out of their homes, out of their cleanliness. It was people who were willing to fill their living rooms with notorious sinners. Now, come on, who are the notorious sinners in this community? You know who they are? They're the lead singers at the opera. And everything that goes with that, you know, have you had them into your home? All the musicians that you play with. Or do you just think, well, to be a Christian is to avoid that. I mean, I play music with them. Some of you that play music, often sacred music with them, but you never have them in your home and lead them to the Savior that Bach wrote about? All right, I'll leave the musicians alone. You know, what about meth people? You know, do you know any? Do you know any people that have meth labs? Do you know anybody that's hooked, addicted? Have any of you gone into the county jail? You know, more conversions happen in county jails than any other place in our country. Now, think about that. It makes sense. That's where people hit the wall. Often for the first time. Often this kid that's never had a dad that said no to them, the first time he ever gets a no that's a real no is the county jail where the cop doesn't want to hear about it. <laughs> you know? I mean, a lot of people hit the wall this weekend. No credit cards this time. How about the frat houses after the little five with pizza? Oh, no, we don't do frat houses. Those guys are, that's all the business dudes, you know. We're artsy-fartsy, you know. Okay, so so like meth addicts and frat, frat dudes and... Um, Gay opera stars and musicians. They're out for various reasons. So who? Who? Come on. Who? Where? How? Why? You know? You're going to bring them over and your musicians and put on your CD of hymns? <laughs> you know, isn't this neat? <laughs> Come on, you guys. If you don't push me, I won't push you. Is that what we have here? You tell me I'm clean, I'll tell you you're clean, and we'll just wait until our children are grown up, and then we can have clean, clean grandchildren. No risks. It's all a clean machine. Okay, you want me to shut up? Huh? Huh? Do you want me to shut up? Yep, yep. You. <laughs> it's bound up in where you live. It's bound up in where you live. I've had this fantasy. I've been driving around the west side of Bloomington. I have a fantasy that I can have property that's like, you know, 
what my dad had. Honestly, what my dad had. He went. He had the choice. He could live in Elgin or Wheaton. He lived halfway in between in farmland. And to this day, my mother's about to move out of that house, and there's still a soybean cornfield behind it. Okay? And it was all about my dad living in the country where he could go out and sit in his garden and not have to talk to anybody. Now, maybe there's a place for that for my dad. But what about you? What's your fantasy? Living someplace where you never have to be around scumbags? And those of you who live among scumbags, do you avoid having them into your home? Now, I know the answer to all these questions, and I have to stop. But, brothers and sisters, this church, I've, you know, it is not about us being clean. I know you. You aren't clean. You know, you're not. The best of you aren't clean. Even women aren't clean. And so the question is, are we going to recognize that God reached down into the pit and grabbed us and has given us faith and repentance? And are we going to see the notorious sinners and the publicans as is, is, is ho-hum, you know, no big deal for God? Or are we going to reach out to people that go to Sherwood Oaks thinking that if we can get them to see that our church is a little bit better, then we'll be able to pay for our building program? Uh, David, is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> That's an in-joke. But, I mean, David, thank God David hits me on this constantly. David is like, uh, you know, he's like, what's that nasty dog that eats people up? A Rottweiler. Or a, well, there's another one. Pitbull. David's a pitbull on this stuff. You know that David came over here, was a part of the Good News Club every single week during this year. Not one of me went with him. Last year, I at least went once. Any of you go with him? No, you're busy, aren't you? What are you busy doing? Huh? Huh? Oh, you have time commitments. Oh, I know. I know. Well, knock me dead. If I don't change, knock me dead. You remember how years ago I said that when you get a new car, you ought to go out with a sledgehammer? And the first thing you ought to do is just hit it with a sledgehammer so your idolatry dies. And then don't fix it. So then I got a Lexus. And all the young men of the church had been taught well, and they had that sledgehammer ready. And I gave them the evil eye. <laughs> don't you dare go near that Lexus, you know. <laughs> well, I was a sinner forever getting that Lexus, and I repented to the congregation, but now I'm before you repenting of my lack of love, wanting to watch the heat and the bulls instead of talking to my daughter about a soul that's entering the kingdom of heaven. That's despicable. And that's who I am. I don't know who you are. But I pray, God, that we as a congregation change because we don't have to go overseas to do missions. <laughs> it's all around us. And those of you who do it, I love you. And yeah, you have your own problems. I know that. There are other areas that God challenges you. 
But that's why we have different gifts. And we honor the gifts of those of you that have a heart for the lost. So now, here's my thinking. One of the things that's most difficult for us is the fact that church is so formal. And even in a gym with basketball hoops all around, we still are able to keep much of our formality. I was reading this last week that in the early church, if you didn't come to the, to the love feast, the agape feast, then you didn't take the sacrament. And so this morning what I want us to do is, is have a very informal Lord's Supper. And I want you to, to move your chairs into a circle, and I want you to talk to each other a little bit. I want to break up this, this ritualized sort of everybody facing me and like... And I want you to pray for each other that you'll love sinners and then eat as you do that. Now, what, how will this work? Well, it will work about the way any meal works, where there will be people that will serve you, take both the cup and the bread at the same time, hold it, and then as you as a group decide, go ahead and eat together. I'd recommend the groups be somewhere between three and seven, um, but it's very easy because these aren't pews, which is a good reason not to have pews, um, if you just like flip around with each other. Now, a couple of words of caution, if the elders could come first, please. Um, this, this meal is a meal for Christians. It's not a meal for non-Christians. Now, if you're a non-Christian and you've seen Eli, or, um, Levi or Matthew, my, my call to you this morning is become a Christian. Become a Christian. Jesus calls you this morning to follow him. This meal he gave to his followers only. And so if you have not believed in the name of Jesus for your righteousness, um, don't take this meal until you have and been baptized. Baptism is the way that we make a signal uh, that God marks us as having entered the kingdom. And so you need to have taken Jesus as your Savior and then been baptized to eat this meal. Also, those of you who are not willing to hang out with notorious sinners and tax collectors um, and who Christianity has become a thing of showing your self-righteousness, don't come to this table unless you're willing to repent of that. I'm not saying that you think tomorrow all of a sudden your home will be filled with meth addicts, right? But I want your heart to want it. And I want you to admit before God that you have not been faithful that you have not loved the lost, that you don't care, that you don't care. In other words, respond to God in faith in his word before you come to this table. This table is not for the hard-hearted. Now, I don't mean to say that you have to have a track record of going out to the lost. I don't have one. Um, But we do need to have hearts that are tender and meek. Uh, The Bible says, humble yourself before God and in due time he will lift you up so let us humble ourselves before the Lord let us pray Father we thank you for your heart for the lost we thank you Father that when Adam sinned that you didn't despise him but that you promised that you would make a way for us to be saved. We thank you that Jesus submitted himself to leaving clean heaven and coming to dirty earth and hanging with people 
who were despicable so that he might save some. We thank you that Matthew opened up his home to notorious sinners so that they could be with Jesus. Father, we pray this morning as we eat this meal that we will love each other. And that after this meal, in our living rooms and in our dining rooms, that we will have in not our friends and relatives, but those who are lost. We pray this week that you will give us eyes to see what we can do to reach out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The words of institution found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're recorded by the Apostle Paul. He says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. Now, the elders are going to pass out both the bread and the cup at the same time. Go ahead right now. Put your chairs